Welcome to episode 79 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, a family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm Kate Rowland, family physician and associate professor at Rush University. I'm John Hickner, family physician, also an editor-in-chief of the Journal of Family Practice. Hi, I'm Henry Barry, another family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPalms. We're recording just a few hours after that marvelous sunrise eclipse. I don't know if anybody got up to to see it. Here where I am, it looked like a little bit of a, more like a Pac-Man, whereas I think up in the UP, you made, parts of the UP might have been in the totality zone. And this is our last episode before Father's Day, so please remember to wish your fathers um, um, a, a great day. It's always on the last day of the uh, U.S. Open, so for the golf fans, it's a nice way to mark that. Thanks, Henry. On this podcast, we highlight patient-oriented evidence that matters, or poems. If you want all of the poems, subscribe to Essential Evidence, where you get a poem daily, plus a great primary care reference with over 800 disease and symptom chapters and thousands of interactive decision support tools. Check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. For a nominal annual fee, you can get CME credit from the Illinois Academy of Family Physicians just for listening to us. Um, You can listen to this podcast, any of them from 2021. Just go to IAFP.com, click on online IAFP education webpage, and find our podcast to get the credit. This week, we're going to discuss caffeine in pregnancy, new-onset diabetes and cancer risk, a clinical prediction rule for ruling out MI, and a report on the frequency of COVID reinfection. Kate, kick us off. Yeah. So according to the best available knowledge, uh, and this is uh, comes also from ACOG, moderate caffeine consumption, which they defined as less than 200 milligrams per day, is not believed to be a major contributing factor in miscarriage or preterm birth. And I will say that estimates of the amount of caffeine in drinks varies pretty widely. So it can be hard to know how much caffeine you're consuming uh, during pregnancy or any other time for that matter. Uh, so the, the question that was being studied in this study uh, was the relationship of caffeine to growth restriction in pregnancy. So this study comes from Gleason et al., and they identified non-smoking pregnant people, about 2,000 of them, who were at low risk for fetal growth abnormalities. And then they collected information on caffeine consumption and neonatal anthropomorphic measurements at birth. So that was their outcome. Um, and that'll be important later, so, so bear that in mind. So they measured plasma caffeine and paraxanthine, which is a major metabolite of caffeine levels, um, at 10 to 13 weeks of gestation. And then they divided those levels into four quartiles of increasing amounts. So what they found is that neonates who were born to pregnant people in the quartile with the highest caffeine amounts, which was over 695 uh, nanograms per milliliter, had lower birth weights, uh, lower they had shorter lengths um, and smaller anthropomorphic measurements compared to those in the lowest caffeine quartiles, which was 25, uh, sorry, 28 nanograms per milliliter or less. Um, so that was also true for, for uh, the paraxanthine metabolite measurements. Um, so the the conclusions that they that they drew um, was that uh, that that pregnant people should consider consuming no caffeine at all, 
and the it, it's not an unreasonable conclusion but the sort of caveats i think that we have to put on this one is these are of course all all does right so they didn't study any patient oriented outcomes uh you know that that might be associated with low birth weight so they didn't study necessarily nicu admission or whether the that the babies were able to go home with their parents uh they didn't study anything um again that might be associated with those low birth weight outcomes uh, the other thing is there, you know, it's a it's an association, uh, not necessarily a, a correlation. Lots of other things could go into, you know, that that caffeine consumption um, that that we might also want to consider. And then there's this other, you know, piece about we tell pregnant people to avoid anything that could be associated with risk without considering um, the potential risk that 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 avoidance uh, may may in, incur to the, to the person who's pregnant. Um, and, and that's, you know, sort of becoming additive. So now you avoid, uh, lunch meat, you avoid, um, you know, alcohol, which the, there, the correlations a little more, more consistent, um, without considering the impact again on, on the, the quality of life for the person who's pregnant. Um, and again, especially in the absence of high quality evidence, uh, this one we might want to think over. So, uh, Henry, what do you think about this one? Yeah, this one is sort of a mind bender in several ways. So, so first of all, observational studies are okay for looking at rare outcomes, harms of interventions, or for exploring um, possible areas for better studies, uh, hypothesis generation, if you will. And, and I think you hit really hit the nail on the head. Do any of those outcomes that they report really mean anything at all? Uh, do these correlate at all with regards to growth, uh, later growth uh, development, uh, cognitive function, all of those important variables. And so if the only thing that matters is that your baby might have a little bit uh, lower anterior axillary fold thickness, who cares, right? Um, what I would be more interested in finding out, not so much the average, but was there a certain rate of severe growth retarded infants associated with the highest levels of caffeine consumption. Those kinds of outcomes start to become a little bit more meaningful than looking at an average um, weight loss. And, and then the other part to this is these were low risk women. And so is there a possibility that among women who are at risk for having um, um, an adverse pregnancy outcome. Does any of this make uh, a difference whatsoever? And, and, you know, caffeine just and coffee in general has been sort of this over many decades, this decaf coffee associated with higher risks of pancreatic cancer. You know, there's been all of these associations. And so far, the only thing that I know that works really, really well is that the more coffee that a person consumes, the more they have to urinate. I'll make a comment on this one as well. I agree with everything that has been said. We would need a much, much, much larger study to look at patient-oriented outcomes for this uh, exposure of caffeine. I would point out that perhaps caffeine then is protective against large for gestational age. So there may be uh, a positive side to it as well. So we're going to have to wait for better data. I don't think this is a practice changer. I'm quite proud of my anterior flank skin fold thickness at this point in my life. So, um, <laughs> that's, yeah, we're so yeah. critical of newborn babies. <laughs> we are. We, um, yeah, I think I, I, I got nothing to add. I think you guys have uh, done a great job summarizing this, but I am going to move on to our quiz. So for which one of the following cancers 
has a large randomized controlled trial found a reduction in all-cause mortality, colorectal cancer, breast cancer, lung cancer, prostate cancer, cervical cancer, none of the above, or all of the above. So stay tuned. Henry, you're up next with your poem. Thank you. My poem asks the question, are adults with newly diagnosed type 2 diabetes also at increased risk of developing cancer? This was um, written by Hu and colleagues in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute just this past April. And what they, they did a um, really remarkable effort. They collected data from two large population-based cohorts, the Nurses' Health Study and the Health Professionals' Follow-Up Study. And they had somewhere around 160,000 people who at the onset of the study were free of cancer and did not have diabetes. And then when they found that a a participant uh, reported that they had been diagnosed with cancer, then they went back and audited all of their records to confirm the diagnoses and stages and things of that nature. And they excluded the non-fatal prostate cancers. As you know, prostate cancer is a bit controversial. And they excluded all of the basal cell and squamous cells, the non-melanoma skin cancers. For about 51,000 of the participants, they also had blood samples that they were able to collect some biomarkers, as well as things like a um, hemoglobin A1C and a C-peptide. Um, there's a little bit of complexity in that among all of the cancers that they diagnosed, they also classified cancers as obesity-related and diabetes-related. And those were classifications from other studies. They didn't just make this up themselves. And for those who have want to access the script, I have the full definitions of what constitutes an obesity-related uh, uh, cancer and a diabetes-related cancer um, in the addendum. So they had about 4.3 million years of follow-up, and during that time, there were just about 44,000 new cases of cancer, half of which were obesity-related, and 60% occurred in persons with type 2 diabetes. And they went and did all of the usual statistical jujitsu and found that independent of all of the other demographic, lifestyle, et cetera, that type 2 diabetes had a 21% increased risk of any cancer, a 28% um, increased risk of obesity-related cancers, and a 25% increased risk of um, diabetes-related cancers. Now, they did some additional kinds of looking at this in terms of timing. And what they found was that the period of greatest risk was during the first um, eight years after the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, which correlated with the rise in C-peptide levels. So that generated this really interesting hypothesis that hyperinsulinemia may be part of that causal pathway. Now, I went back and found a poem that we did in 2006, a smaller, uh, similar study that found that the use of insulin and sulfonylureas were also um, associated with a greater risk of death due to cancers compared with those taking metformin. And for those who are taking insulin, the risk of uh, dying from um, uh, cancer was almost twice as much as any other. So one possible 
explanation for that study was that maybe metformin was protective or maybe the treatments were potentially harmful. But if you take that in conjunction with this current study, it really gives greater credence that hyperinsulinemia is probably a factor in oncogenesis, probably mediated through um, an insulin-like growth factor. Mark, what do you think? I don't know what to think. I actually don't know what to do with that information. It's really interesting. Um, but how, what am I, how am I going to sort of operationalize that? What am I going to do differently? I don't think it's a big enough increase in risk where I would screen people more aggressively or treat them differently. I think it's, um, it, it may have something to do with how we manage diabetes and, and how we select treatments down the road. But yeah, it's interesting. I'm just not sure what to do with it. John, or I'm sorry, Kate. I have a lot of questions here. So you know, sometimes you're, you're diagnosed with diabetes, you come into medical care maybe a little more. So I can't tell if this is an increase in, in just diagnosis mm -hmm. of cancers. And, and that seems like there's a lot of, of, you know, potential for confounding here. Another thing that I can't quite tell if they controlled for, <laughs> I would assume that they would, but I it, can't actually tell if they did, um, is control of diabetes, which would certainly explain why people who were treated with insulin you know, potentially experienced worse, you know, a, a higher, a higher mortality rate. Um, so yeah, again, you know, an observational study, potentially uh, a lot of other things going on that, you know, they, they can do the best they can and still have um, some issues with their outcomes. Um, or they can have, you know, some, some things that they're really exploring and, and miss some other things at the same time. Yeah, really large observational studies have the the risk of providing the wrong answer with great precision. Um, so that's a, that's always something to keep in mind. I would think that all right, given all um, of the other information so that we have that, about newer agents yeah. for treating um, type two diabetes, that you know this could potentially argue that early on you probably might not want to be feeding the insulin oncogenes um, and maybe avoid insulin and use some of the others. In, in, mo in most circumstances. At least in theory. Very doughish, though, for us. Very to, much so. You know, making that, but uh, we'll, we'll go with it. <clears throat> okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about a poem related to um, ruling out uh, acute MI. And this was a study where they had 22,000 patients coming into 15 uh, emergency departments in California. They all had a suspected AMI, and they all systematically, prospectively had what's called a HERE score recorded. So HERE stands for history, which can be either slightly, moderately, or highly suspicious. The E is EKG, normal, nonspecific, or significant ST deviation. Risk factors, which is none, one or two, or three or more. And you could also, three or more also uh, includes having known atherosclerotic disease. And age is less than 45, 45 to 64, and 65 or older. And you get zero to two points for each of those factors. So the, the thing about it is all you need is an EKG. You don't need any blood tests. And there was a heart score. This is a, a version of that. The T in heart score is troponin. The reason I want to talk about this is because we can all do EKGs in our offices. We can't typically get a troponin. So this is something that maybe has a little more applicability in the primary care setting. So they excluded patients with a STEMI, those under hospice care, those with a DNR order written. The average age of the patients was 58 years, a little over half were women, about three quarters were overweight or obese, and about 38% uh, 
exactly 38% were current or former smokers. Overall, acute MIR death occurred in 1.1% in the next 30 days. Uh, of those four here attributes, EKG changes were the most predictive of death in AMI. Of the 19% who presented with a HERE score of zero or one, there were three deaths and two experienced in acute MI, which is only 0.1%. So very, very low risk of any of those bad things happening if they have a HERE score of zero or one. So a combination of history, EKG, age, and risk factors can be used to identify which patients presenting to an ED are at low risk of acute MI. I think it also would apply to patients coming in to see us in a primary care setting. Patients younger than 64, without a history of heart disease, without any risk factors, and with an EKG that's normal or nonspecific are unlikely to have an acute MI over the next 30 days. So I think that's useful, helps us uh, prioritize who needs to be shipped off to the hospital for uh, more detailed evaluation and troponin versus who can we uh, just send off to the cardiologist for a stress test uh, a week or two later. Any thoughts on that, John? Yes, it says excellent performance for a clinical decision support tool. I wonder, though, there are several different clinical support tools out there for chest pain and ruling out acute MI. So I'd, I'd like to see at some point a comparison and wonder which of these works the best or are they all similar and whether any emergency room physicians are actually using these risk scores. That's a good question because there are thousands of these risk scores out there for a, a whole range of conditions, but there are very few that are, I think, being routinely used by uh, clinicians. And, you know, part of that is, I think, that the overall clinical impression when it's been looked at is actually pretty similar to these risk scores. And I think the risk scores may be most helpful for less experienced clinicians, um, you know, and for uh, trainees to train them about what to look for, what to pay attention to. But I think mm -hmm. we're pretty good as experienced clinicians, at least when I've looked at it in our studies, the overall clinical impression is pretty much similar to any clinical prediction rule you can come up with. Uh, Kate, what do you think? Yeah, those clinical gestalt um, studies are, are all often very interesting uh, to see that, you know, you sort of develop over time a sense of what's important and what's not. Um, I think uh, where I'm always really interested also with clinical decision-making tools is when they're really integrated into, um, you know, some of the, the care management um, pieces of of the system, um, because that's when they really have, I think, the most power. Uh, it's not just, you know, that there's other things that help help us make decisions uh, to really provide sort of the right amount of care um, to somebody where, where we're not just sort of like, yeah, I know that it's a really, really small risk, but I'm not willing to take that risk where, where we have some support to be able to, to make, you know, get those appointments in quickly um, so that people have the, the right amount of follow-up um, if, we, if we're able to make the decision not to admit right away. Yeah, ideally, these things would be sort of baked in so that when you open the chart up on your laptop, you would have, it would already have looked at, you know, the, it would have the EKG results, it would know the patient's risk factors from their past medical history, it would know their age. Um, and you could, you know, the gestalt is kind of baked into this rule with the history part where it says slightly, moderately, or highly suspicious, that's actually building in that clinical impression. Henry? Yeah, Tell us. my my only uh, gripe about this is the name. Um, that for those who are linear thinkers and how we go about our normal process, we take our history first and we do some testing and the like. So to me, history, age, risk factors, and EKG. So it would be the hair score, not the hair score. <laughs> 
Okay, and then where would you put troponin when you get that? Would it be the there score? That's a, yeah, that's a different score. <laughs> now you got to get that last. Okay, that's different. All right, all right. Um, enough silliness. John, you're going to talk a little bit about a um, COVID study. This is the newest of a series of reinfection studies. This was published in JAMA Internal Medicine on May 28th, so it's just about hot off the press. The purpose of this study, which was from Lombard region of Italy, was to determine reinfection rates of SARS-CoV up to 12 months after the first infection. That particular region had 122,000 PCR tests done for SARS-CoV-2 from February to July of 2020. They included both symptomatic and asymptomatic individuals. Cases then were individuals who tested positive during that baseline period. And of course, the controls were individuals who had a test that was negative during the baseline period. Reinfection was defined typically, as other studies, as a second PCR positive test result beyond 90 days after resolution of the first infection and with at least two negative tests between the episodes. So during the follow-up period, and uh, the mean follow-up was 280 days for patients with a standard deviation of 40, of the 1,579 individuals who tested positive during the baseline period, there were only five reinfections. That's a 0.31% rate, so quite a low rate. Interestingly, the mean interval between primary infection and reinfection was 230 days, although many people were followed for up to a year. Therefore, there was one in 316 individuals reinfected within 12 months. Now, of the 13,000 roughly patients who were not initially infected, there were 528 new cases. That's about 4%. The incidence rate ratio then, uh, after they adjusted for age, sex, and ethnicity, was quite low for reinfection. That's 0 .07, 0 0.07, so under 0.1%. Compared to those, uh, comparing those who had prior infection with those who didn't. The study extends the time frame of prior studies of reinfection, which in the past have found that reinfection is unlikely within six months of a primary care infection or primary infection. This study shows that reinfection is unlikely at least within the first nine months, probably unlikely up to 12 months, since many of these individuals were actually follow up for a full 12 months. So this has continued good news about low reinfection rate. Of the five cases that were reinfected, most of them were people who worked in a medical environment. So they were people who were exposed quite frequently to um, COVID. Kate? Yeah, like you said, certainly good news. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting. It may help us, uh, for the time being at least, um, get towards those higher immunity levels that we're looking for as we uh, are, are making moves towards reopening. Henry. Yeah. So as you two have pointed out, this report is reassuring at many levels. It does not yet answer, and I'm not sure that the, I've seen any data yet that answers whether, quote, natural immunity um, 
is better than vaccinated immunity. I think based on comparing apples and oranges, I think they're comparable in terms of um, reinfection versus mm-hmm. um, primary prevention. Um, and then the other part to this, is it really underscores the importance of why we need to have population-based cohort studies, disease surveillance to be able to understand a lot of the, the natural history, especially of new outbreaks. Yeah, you know, in terms of the natural versus um, vaccine immunity, there was a study where they estimated about an 85% efficacy of having a previous infection in terms of reducing your risk. This one would argue for about a 90, 90% or so. So it's in that same ballpark, a little, a tiny bit less than the Pfizer Moderna, but in the same range. And the, the question is the durability. Do you have greater durability with vaccine than with a natural infection. I know in the study that we are doing, and I was just working on writing it up this morning, um, of uh, immunity among uh, students at our university, uh, we had about a 42% prevalence, maybe 43%. And um, <clears throat> what the lab person told us was they could they, they found a couple of people who it later turned out had been vaccinated and they had super high antibody levels. They really stood out among all the natural immunity antibody levels for having very high titers. And he's, he said in their other study that they're doing where they've been looking at vaccine immunity, uh, they see these super high levels compared to the natural immunity. So there may be some difference. It's not clear how that translates into clinical practice, but you know we're all trying to figure this out. So that was interesting I, I'm, and uh, good to see, you know, again, um, more evidence. And, and certainly Italy had the earliest outbreak, so they're going to have the longest experience of uh, looking at this question. So we'll be interested to continue to follow that. So I'm going to give you the answer to the quiz. So which one of the following cancers has a large randomized control trial that found a reduction in all-cause mortality with screening? And colorectal, breast, lung, prostate, cervical, none or all. So there is evidence of lower disease-specific mortality from several randomized trials for colorectal cancer and breast cancer, but they haven't shown any reduction in all-cause mortality. Now, systematic reviews have shown strong trends that support are consistent with lower all-cause mortality, and the reduction in overall deaths is similar to the magnitude of the reduction in the cancer-specific deaths. So that's all reassuring, makes sense, suggests there isn't any untoward effective screening that the the reduction in deaths, both all-cause and and disease-specific, are similar. But it takes a lot more patients to prove a reduction in all-cause mortality, eight to 10 times as many. And so we're really only approaching that sample size in some of these meta-analyses. There haven't been any randomized trials of cervical cancer screening at all. Um, It was introduced and widely adopted, and we have, I think, pretty good observational and ecologic data to support the effectiveness, but no randomized trials. As we all know, I think the prostate cancer data are mixed. The USPLCO uh, trial showed no reduction in disease-specific or all-cause mortality, while two of the seven countries in the European ERSPIC trials did show lower prostate cancer mortality. But if you put all those trials together, no difference in all-cause mortality. So the answer is the one that I haven't talked about yet, which is lung cancer screening. The National Lung Screening Trial showed a significant reduction in all-cause mortality with a number needed to screen of 220 to prevent one all-cause death. So that is the um, the answer to our quiz. Thanks, everybody, for listening today. Thanks, uh, John, Henry, and Kate for joining me. 
And uh, to get that CME credit, go to IAFP.com, click on online IAFP education webpage and find our podcast. The IAFP is credited by the ACCME to provide CME for physicians. They designate this podcast for one half AMA category one credit. I think we should be a full credit, but you know, half a credit's better than none. The IAFP adheres to the conflict of interest policy, the ACCME and the AMA. You can read the complete disclosure on the IAFP website. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion, learned a little bit. Tell your friends, we'll talk to you soon with more primary care updates. Mm-hmm.